Well, good morning. As you can hear, I've got about three quarters of a voice that I came back to the country with, so we'll see how it goes, but uh, I'm sure God will be gracious, and we'll trust that we're all edified by, by the Word today, but it's just good to be back. Um, it was really good to go. It's really good to go and um, get to spend some time with some of our precious people that have been sent out and uh, know and trust that it was encouraging to them uh, in South Asia and um, hopefully just helping them uh, be a little more encouraged to run a little further the race with endurance. Um, and, but it's always good to be back, right? This is our, our family and our home. Um, but it is really cool to go. There, there were several gatherings of believers we got to sit in with, and um, sometimes it was a pocket of 12 or 15, and some it was two or three, and some uh, we got to experience a couple of worship services uh, but one in particular, uh, the church that was in the city, uh, we got to sit and there were, as I looked out, people with two different African nation backgrounds, uh, obviously people from that country, uh, people from uh, America, and, and I think Australia. Um, and just what a good gift to get to taste a little bit of heaven when you sit with people from every tribe and tongue or samplings of people from tribes and tongues and nations. You just get to taste a little bit about uh, what it's going to be like forever uh, when, you, when God knits hearts together across all those different places. Um, but there's nothing like home, nothing like being with you and worshiping with you. And so uh, I was forced with no voice to still have to sing because how do you not, right? And so, again, we'll trust God to be gracious. Today, uh, we're talking about Christmas and um, beginning to transition to a couple of messages, focusing on the birth of, of Christ as, as we go through it. And everything in you is going to be tempted to speed up over the next couple of weeks, which is crazy because we usually have more downtime than ever. But something inside of you is going to be like, go, go, buy, go, visit, go, celebrate, go, go to the office party, go to the Sunday school party, which you should if you have to choose between the two, you know, go. <laughs> Go, and um, even when there's nothing going on, something inside of us says go, and I hope that you will fight against that within yourself, and something in you will say, stay, be still, know that I am God, and hopefully worship services like this and Christmas Eve and other things that we get to do will help you uh, slow down your soul, even if your body keeps going, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, and uh, we've come through the last few weeks, we had Thanksgiving, and we just wanted to think about how do we cultivate an, a, a posture of thankfulness within our souls, right? How do, how do we have good conversations with our souls instead of our souls informing everything we do so that we can cultivate Thanksgiving? Uh, and then since December represents for us the greatest missionary event of all time, not a missionary event like us going into places in Asia it's pretty weird, and it's pretty different. Not places, uh, missionary tasks like us going to, I don't know, even places in Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia. Those are pretty weird and pretty different. But think how weird and different it is to be enthroned in the eternal praises of angels in the perfect holiness of heaven, to come to an earth like this in a manger and be born and to walk around not where you're praised, but where you're despised. That's the greatest missionary task in the history of the world, crossing every barrier to go to a cross to die and to rise again, 
to welcome us to, to back to the Father. And so it makes sense that Micah preached a great message last week that we transition and we think about there is still a missionary task for us to do. There is still the work of Christ that's been accomplished, places that it hasn't been extended yet, places where it's not. And that's why we celebrate uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this month. That's why we, we ask you to give more generously year after year. And with such a wonderful heart, you give more generously year after year because there's places Christmas hasn't come yet. And yet the return of Christ will come and it will end all opportunities. And so we, we had a great time kicking off that, um, that, that month of celebration of that. But today we'll begin some Christmas messages. We'll be in Luke chapter 1. Um, it's a sprawling chapter in Scripture, 80 verses, and a lot of stuff happens. But as you look at Luke, what you'll see is Luke has a big fondness for pairing things. Um, so s- stories that pair with each other and kind of amplify each other. You also see Luke has a unique feature, is he's very fond of pairing stories about men and stories about women, which is a very unique feature to Luke from, from the other Gospels. And so uh, in Luke chapter 1, birth announcement number 1 comes, and there's a guy named Zechariah, and it's his time to go into the temple to offer incense. And he goes, and an angel comes to him, and he's, you're going to have a baby. And Zechariah's baby was a nearly impossible birth. Much like Abraham, he and his wife were old and infertile also. And so the angel comes to him, you're going to have a baby. Zechariah does not respond in the best possible way. And he doubts and questions what the angel has just said. And he is struck mute for over nine months until the baby comes. And then you have a story about a woman. And an angel visits a woman. And the angel tells this woman a birth announcement is coming. And this birth is not going to just be nearly impossible. It's going to be absolutely impossible. Because they're not just old and infertile. She is a virgin. And biologically, every birth in the history of the world began nine or ten months earlier with a male and a female, contrary to popular opinion, a male and a female engaging in some kind of activity that produces that birth later on. And so Mary is like, God, or angel, I hear what you're saying. How can this be? And... The angel explains to her, because Mary isn't coming from a place of doubt. She's coming from a place of like, okay, how is this going to work out? Because I know how this works, right? So you have a nearly impossible birth, impossible birth. You have a last of the Old Testament prophets, the greatest born among women, as Jesus says, John the Baptist, um, being uh, his birth announcement. Jesus, the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist is pointing to, his birth Coming, And so you have these pairings of stories that heighten as you go along. And then you have Mary having a song of praise as she meets with Elizabeth. And hers is called the Magnificat. Um, the first Latin word in the text, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then you have it followed by a, another song by a male. And that's the one we're looking at, uh, Zachariah's song. It's called the uh, Benedictus from the first Latin, the Latin word of the first line, blessed be the Lord. And so, Zechariah has been mute for nine or ten months now. 
Uh, he hasn't been able to speak. Finally, the baby is born. And the naming is a very special ceremony in, the, in ancient uh, Israel. And so, what are we going to name him? And his wife, Elizabeth, is, uh, we're going we're gonna to name him John. And all the neighbors are like, you can't name him John. You don't have anybody in your family named John. John's not okay. I mean, I, I guess they get the right to say that to mom. I don't know how, but they did. And so they ask Zechariah. And he gets a writing tablet and he writes, his name is John. Because that's what God said. I'm going to name him what God said. I've learned my lesson. What God said, we're going to do it. His name is John. And as soon as he writes that sentence, his mouth opens and he can speak again. And we're about to hear what he speaks. But what all these events led to within the crowd was the crowd was like, something is special about this baby. Something is, what is this child going to do? What is this son going to, to do? And so, Zachariah opens his mouth, and this is what he says in 67 and following. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. So, Father... As Mary thinks about her son, Jesus, she magnifies you. Would you let a little bit of that land on our hearts with wonder and awe? Because we know more than she knew. And would our souls magnify you? Zechariah is thinking about your son and, and what he, he, he's going to do. And he blesses you because of that. And so I pray that our souls would bless you because of what we're looking at today. I pray we would be stirred in our affections, stirred in our love. I pray we'd be changed and there'd be a movement within us so that we respond just a little bit more the way these people responded when they encountered the birth of your son. And so, Father, help us. We need your help for our souls to come alive and for our souls to feel. And so, Father, do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, kind of the point we're looking at, praise God for Jesus' birth, and he gives some reasons for that. Praise God for Jesus' birth, because first, Jesus brings salvation from our truest enemy, and ultimately all our enemies. Jesus brings salvation from our truest enemy, and ultimately from all our enemies. 
Um, I'm going to walk and get water while I talk. It's right here. So we spent 10 days in South Asia um, this, this past 10 days with Jason here and, and, and Matt. Um, and if you want to know what the world would be like if Christmas never happened, you would get a really good picture of that walking around South Asia. You'd get a really good picture of what it's like when the light of the world has not shone on a place and what it would be like if Jesus had never come. And what it would be like if God hadn't re- redeemed the people for himself. Because you're looking at and you're walking around the sprawling masses of humanity, deceived in false religions that are separated from God and that, that have very hard hearts towards God and what he's up to. And it's, uh, it's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. Um, two, two scenes that really struck me. The first day, you know, I'm not from Statesboro, but I've been here 10 years, and, like, I'm from Statesboro now. And we were walking around the first day because they didn't want to let us fall asleep, and we come out of the market, and I ended up on a corner, and it just, like, kind of hit me almost physically for a moment. It's like, there are people everywhere. Like, there are people on every corner or on every corner of the street. There's people lining the streets in booth after booth or cart after cart. And there are people as far as the eye can see. And it was just a little bit overwhelming. Because, you know, like, they come back or missionaries come from all over the field. And they're like, man, our city has 12 million people. Our city has 19 million people. Our city has 20 million people. And you're like, man, wow, that's wild. And you have zero comprehension what 19 million people stacked on top of each other looks like, all of which who are lost and headed to eternity apart from God. And and it just kind of hit me physically there. And then uh, about halfway through the trip, we got to worship with some believers and and, uh, went to an outer balcony on on the top floor of this building as we were kind of heading out. And I looked, and it's just a panorama of the city. As far as the eye could see, you could not see the end of the city. You could not see an end of high-rise after high-rise after high-rise. As far as the eye can see, in every direction from where we were. And that's what 19 million people in darkness and lostness apart from Jesus look like. And we, we say it here, but we're, we don't really get it as much here. Lost people act lost. It is a dark country spiritually. They're lost. And it is dark how they live. Um, The amount of corruption within the government, I think it was somewhere between the top five and ten richest people in the country. Don't work for own oil companies. They work for the government. How does a government official become the richest person in a country, honestly? Of course they don't. And so how do you get rich? Through bribes and corruption. You want to talk about oppression? That's darkness. That's, that's darkness. That's a little bit about what And then you either have to have a really good connection or you have to bribe somebody to get a government job. But once you get a government job, you're set for life. That's darkness. That's darkness. The amount of poverty there is absolutely, you, you cannot explain it. You cannot explain it. You got people uh, running a tea cart, making a couple of bucks a day, surrounded by beggars who, who, who beg for money. And then you want to talk about dark? Listen to this. 
So there's beggars, and you know, you, you, you just couldn't give enough. You couldn't. You, you could take all the money in the world and not give enough. But here's what you find out. Beggars are a profession, and there's a boss above them who sends them out and makes them beg for money and then takes everything they make, giving them just a little bit back, so it all goes up to some guy above them who has a team of beggars. And they would literally take uh, like invalid children, uh, disabled children, and they would just pass them around among the beggars so that they could get a little more money from the people passing by. Can you imagine that? That's darkness. Abusing women is the norm, not the exception within homes and family structures. Children being abused and assaulted is the norm, not the exception. This is what it is like when there's no Christmas. It's dark. It's dark, and it's, it's nearly hopeless. And for me, I want to get angry because I'm an American. We can fix this stuff, or at least I can crack ahead of a guy or two that would, that would hurt a kid. Or, man, we have got to change the structures. We've got to clean up the corruption. We've got to fix the system. And nothing you could ever do and no amount of money you could ever send would touch it. It would make the top politicians richer, but it wouldn't touch it. It's utterly hopeless, except for one fact. Jesus did come into the world. Light has shone in darkness He did live and die and rise again to offer them an eternal hope, even if the earthly existence they have will never offer anything else. And and so the prayer is like, God, more laborers for the harvest. The prayer is, God, uh, give them power in the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses because Satan has so blinded these 170 million people. God, if you don't tear the veil off of their hearts, they'll, they'll never believe God would just move that way. And would you raise up people to go tell them? The only thing that makes the world have any hope in it is that Christ has come. That Christmas is about a rescue mission. And so let's look at it as we begin to open up the the text. Jesus brings salvation from our truest, truest enemies. And so Zechariah begins his speech filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, And so as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, what is his response when, when it hits him, because it took the Holy Spirit to give him a, a clearer vision of what all this means, when it hits him, what has just happened? What's his response? He blesses the Lord God of Israel. Praise is the response to these things. Speaking great things about God is what his response is to these things. And so what should our response be as we study what Zechariah's prophecy says. What impact does the scripture intend to make on us as we study it? That you and I would bless the Lord God of Israel. That you and I would speak great things about God, would praise God. And so, again, if we look at this and we don't leave with something in us stirred, if we look at this and some level of praise doesn't come out of it for us, then, then we've missed why we gathered around this text today. And so praise God. Praise God for Jesus' birth. And blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And the, the, he introduces the whole prophecy by giving us the reasons that he, he wants to bless God. The reasons to praise. And there's three of them. 
He, he, he wants to, his soul and he wants us. Bless God. Why? Because God has visited his people. Well, how did he visit his people? In the Bible, or especially in the New Testament, the word for visit never simply involves stopping by and saying hello. Right? He, God didn't visit his people by like knocking on the door. How you doing? Good to see you. All right, we'll see you next time. Visit in the New Testament always, uh, or this word means to visit in order to help. And so God has visited his people to help his people. But how did he visit? He visited by becoming flesh and dwelling among us so that we could behold his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one had seen God at any time, but the only God who was in the bosom of the Father has revealed him to us. And so he visited us by becoming one of us. God the Son became flesh. God the Son became fully human so that God could visit us with his help. Well, what was that help that we needed? What was the help that came in the person of Jesus? He has redeemed us. To be redeemed, is, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is the idea of paying a price to buy something back. And so, in the Old Testament, the firstborn son belonged to the Lord. And somebody would, or parents would go in and they would make a, a special offering for their firstborn son to redeem their firstborn son, to buy them back. Uh, it's also a slave market term. It is to pay a price to buy someone into freedom. And so God has redeemed us. He's paid the price to buy our freedom. How? Through becoming one of us and dying and rising again. And then look at the third thing that we should praise. He's raised up a horn of salvation. And as you've noticed, this is a very Old Testament passage. Right? It's very Old Testament themes and words and ideas in this passage. Horn of salvation, um, it, the ram's horn was a symbol of strength. Sometimes it would be filled with oil and they would anoint from it. Sometimes it was turned into to trumpets and used that way. But it became the symbol of strength and triumph. And so when, God, uh, uh, when the text says he's raised up a horn of salvation, he's raised up this triumphant, powerful salvation for us. Is that worth praising God over that he would become one of us to redeem us and give us a salvation? I think it's a pretty decent reason. You guys think what you will about it. And so uh, he raised up a horn of salvation. And again, if you spent any time in the Old Testament, you recognize so many of these themes and ideas. But look what it says. As he spoke by the mouth of his, of his, his prophets, um, He's raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. <clears throat> and so, within this passage, you have the two great covenants that come, in, in, or two of the great covenants that come in the Old Testament. God came to a man named Abraham. He lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was an idolater who had no business for God. And God came to him and called him to himself and then sent him on a journey to a place that he hadn't told him yet. And what did God promise? He promised him a land, he promised him a nation, he promised him an offspring, a son they had, couldn't have yet, and then he promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through one of the sons of Abraham. And so that shows up in this passage talking about Jesus. Then he made a promise, to, a covenant with 
David, and he, he, he covenanted with David, the king, that every king from now on that's legitimate will come from your line, David. But ultimately, one king will come, and he'll be the forever king. He'll be the Messiah, and he'll come from you. And so when he says here, the house of his servant David, when he says here, the oath that he swore to Abraham, what he's saying is, when you get to the core of these covenants and promises, what were they about? Blessing the nations of the earth through this birth of this God, the Son, who is coming to help and offer salvation. And Jesus viewed it this way too. If you, if you read your Old Testament and, and you don't have Jesus' lenses on when you do that, you're going to miss things. That's how Jesus read it in John chapter 5. If you believe Moses, you'll believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. And then after his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples in Luke 24. He, he begins explaining things concerning himself from where? From Moses and the prophets. And so the prophets all along have been pointing to this birth, pointing to this salvation, pointing to Christ and God the Son showing up in the world to fulfill the promises God has made to rescue a people for himself. And that's what we're seeing happen at Christmas. That's why we're seeing Zechariah burst with praise to God as the first thing when his mouth opens back up. But if you see there, there's, there's one thing he, that, that, that he points out at the end. We are delivered from something in our salvation. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he delivered us from something. What did he deliver us from? The hand of our enemies. But you look around and it doesn't quite look like the enemies of God have all been taken care of. Like how is this true? If Jesus' birth was supposed to deliver us from the hands of our enemies, how is that true? Because it doesn't seem like it's happened yet. We, get, we got to meet a dear brother in, in South Asia and uh, they were asked, like, okay, tell us a little bit about some of the persecution you faced. And with a pretty straight face and a very winsome smile, like it was kind of a casual conversation, he went through about 12 incidences or 10 incidences of persecution that he's faced. That doesn't seem like he's been delivered from the hand of all his enemies. So I'm, I'm gonna give you three um, things from this. One is an explanation, and then the other two is gonna be, okay, what does that mean for now? And then what does that mean ultimately? So I'm going to use a big word because sometimes I have to prove to you I went to seminary. I don't want you to question it too much, right? And so prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. So I know that word and I know what it means. Just want you to say that I got my money's worth there. But what it means to you is this. The prophets of the Old Testament of which Zechariah is one. Jesus hasn't died yet, so we're still in the Old Testament they would look out and they would see the prophecies they were making and they, there'd be great detail to them. But they would see them, but there was no way to distinguish was there time and sequence attached to the things they're seeing or was it one event? The way you could think about it, not in Statesboro, but if you decide to go to the mountains to enjoy your holidays, you can see it. You drive in and way off in the distance you see mountains. And you see them, and they look like they're right beside each other, don't they? 
But then when you get to mountain number one, you realize mountain number two has got a valley and it's way back here. It's not really that close at all. And so the prophets were looking out seeing the first and second comings of Jesus and there wasn't really a way with depth perception to tell how separated they were. And so a lot of what we see is in the songs and the prophecies of Christ is you see this overlap between the lion version of Jesus that will take away the sins of the world and the lion version of Jesus, which is I will rule over the nations with a rod of iron and you will pay homage to me or you will suffer. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on here. You'll be delivered from your enemies. But what does that mean here and now, today? Is it irrelevant? I would say no. Say one, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the active wrath of God is against all ungodliness today. Nobody's getting away with it. Nobody's experiencing a life of abundance as God defines it, who is living in, in, in evil. But the other way I would say it is this. The greatest problem and the greatest enemy that you have in your life that will kill you eternally is sin. And, and, and so like, it's hard for me to think this way. So I'm going to try to help you Join me in this hard thought process and, and, and just see if we can get a glimpse of it. Let's say that I had a magic wand and I wasn't so selfish that I just got a bunch of money for myself. I had a magic wand and I waved it over South Asia where we were. And magically they have a government that functions. Now it's not great and perfect, it's fallen human government, but it, it works. And imagine the corruption, gone. Imagine poverty, gone. Imagine schools sprung up from the ground and everyone got a great education and everything. For, and then poverty is gone and they've got a good middle class and their economic structures are built out. Chris's magic wand is really rocking it, but they're still enslaved to two or three false religions. They're still lost. They treat each other a little nicer, but they're still lost. They have a little more money, but they're still lost. Have I really given them what they need at that point? It's hard to think that way, isn't it? Because it is evil and hard to think about that level of poverty. It is hard to think about that level of abuse. You cannot comprehend it all. But if I fixed every one of that and they were still headed to eternity apart from God, did I solve what really needed to be solved in their life? And if you walk around the streets of Statesboro where there's nice people and they have money, they have education. We've got a university right there. We can mostly all get what we need and a good bit of what we want, and we're fairly comfortable at it. And so many people have a little religion because they went to church once or twice a year, and they don't have Christ. And we just create more and more comfortable people who are more and more separated from God. And so... Not that it's an either or, not that we shouldn't care, but I, I guess here's how I would think about it. Gospel transformation will always lead to cultural transformation once it reaches a certain mass. But cultural transformation will never ever lead to gospel transformation. If we were to take back the government and take back the state houses and take back the Senate and take back the whatever, it save people from an eternity apart from God? No, that's the message 
of Christmas. That's the message of the church. It's not the message of the government. The government doesn't make people saved, no matter how good it is. And why do I say that? Because when it says it saved us from all our enemies, the greatest enemy was the enemy that separates us from God eternally, called our sin. Until there was a way for our sins to be forgiven because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. And then gave us his righteousness. Until that happened, our greatest enemy was going to be our separation from God. And Jesus came for our truest and greatest enemy, our separation from God. And then the last thing I would say about this, because we do care about the burdens and the weight and the hurt and the, and the poverty of people. What I would say is this, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will deliver from the hand of every enemy. And there will be no more injustice. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more loss. There will be no more governments who take their cut of what we would want to go and feed people with. It will all be perfect the way it's supposed to be. And we will finally been delivered from all our enemies. And so Jesus brings a salvation that delivers us from our truest enemy today and ultimately all our enemies. Injustice is living on borrowed time is the way I would put it. It's coming to an end. Second, praise praise God for Jesus' birth because Jesus restores our original purpose of holiness, intimacy, and service. Jesus restores us to our original purpose of holiness, intimacy, and service. So uh, some of y'all have heard about Chris and Michael Copeland's company, The Backyardigans. You know, we we make cars run again kind of thing. Not well all the time. Not quickly most of the time, but you know, we do it. And so, if you leave a car sitting long enough, and by the way, it's not a real company. We just like hang out, fellowship, minister to each other, help other people out. Um, If you let a car sit long enough, that car is going to go bad. It's going to go bad. The stuff that's meant to run through the engine and lubricate, it's going to kind of settle out. It's going to gunk up. The power system that's supposed to make that car start up and and go, it's going to drain out. Those rubber tires and rubber boots that are are putting everything together, they're going to dry rot. Cars are made to be driven. Christians that sit around too long go bad very quickly. Christians that stay parked too long go bad. Some of the ways we go bad when we stay parked is we, we go bad and we, we stay parked by playing with our sin. Now, maybe our sin is very acceptable and very respectable, and we just have little bits of gossip conversations. You know, what's wrong with that? Who's really being hurt? Maybe our, our sin is, is little, in our minds at least, or, or, or it's respectable at least, and, and, and it's just a little bit of laziness, a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of whatever, and we just sit around and we go bad. Or maybe our sin is much bigger and much more blatant and much more obvious to ourselves and to others, and we 
like to pray around with our lusts and our greeds and our overwhelming selfishness. We like to be harsh and selfish in our relationships. We want our way from other people versus serving other people in love. You know, maybe that's some of it. But we play around with our sin, and it keeps us in park as Christians. And we go really bad, really fast. Or maybe one of the ways that you stay parked is you don't intentionally pursue intimacy with God. There's nothing in your life that that is prioritizing running after Jesus, abiding in Christ, so that you can bear much fruit. Now, maybe you do some good religious stuff. Maybe you're here every week. Maybe you serve here in real ways, but apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And so you're really, really busy doing religious stuff, accomplishing nothing. Or maybe it's not religious stuff. Maybe you're just really busy. And you're really busy with your family, because you should be. You should love your family. And you're really busy with all the requirements that keeping your family going requires. And that's really good, because you should love your family and, and invest in them. And you're really, really busy. But apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And so you're, you're busy without a connection to Christ. And if you stay in part too long, it'll go bad on you. One more way I think we stay in part, as we stay in part by not serving the Lord in any meaningful way. We don't serve the Lord in any meaningful way at all. And so we stay in part because we don't come and engage in genuine worship of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making a melody in our heart to the Lord. We don't prioritize gathering with other believers. We don't serve the Lord by gathering. We don't serve the Lord by finding a way we can plug in and help the church. Maybe it's formally. Maybe it's a set of relationships within the church. Whatever that means for you. But we don't intentionally pursue any way of actually serving the Lord by serving people. Or maybe it's serving beyond the church and in another set of relationships or blessing the people around you or, or making sure to meet the needs beyond the three hours a week we're together. And, and meeting real needs in, a, in real ways. And if you stay in park as a Christian too long, you will go bad. And so let's look at, at the text. It says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father. So if you were to look at the covenant of Abraham, like, oh, the covenant of Abraham, okay, vaguely. And then the covenant of David, vaguely. And then, you know, there were some laws and stuff in there somewhere. Okay, I got that. If you were to sum it up in one word, what word would you use? Because look what Zechariah uses. Everything that was said in these covenants, the mercy promised. How does God sum up what he's promising people, uh, his people through these covenants? It's mercy. It's a love that springs into action to help. It's a love that springs into action not to give us what we deserve, but to give us goodness and grace and favor instead. God's promised mercy. That mercy's come in the blessing to all nations of the earth. That mercy's come through the promised Christ that would come out of the line of David. That mercy's come by Jesus being born and God becoming flesh and living among us. So mercy has been promised. Mercy is here. And then look what he says. 
to show the mercy promised that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, picking back up from what he just said, might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Here's what I take that to mean. Sin has destroyed and corrupted our original design. Sin has so defaced uh, our original design that it's almost unrecognizable. See, the only reason you exist on this planet is to reflect God back to God in praise and to reflect what God is truly like by imaging him in the world as you live and as you relate and as you speak and as you, you show him off in your relationships. You exist for the glory of God and no other purpose at all. And so if that's your design... What does sin do? It turns the mirror around and I reflect me to me. And I become the central issue of importance. I become intensely selfish. The world becomes about me and how do I reflect me and get mine in this world? And so what does it mean to be redeemed into our original design? What are we made for? And that's what he's saying right here. He gives three things. I'm gonna take them out of order. So I apologize if that messes you up. What does he say is our original design? In righteousness and holiness. In righteousness and holiness. We were originally created pure, spotless, righteous, that is in right relationship to God, and holy. The requirement for your life and mine is pure, spotless, righteous, right relationship to God, and holy. There is no standard less than that God will ever accept from you. That creates a problem because we don't have it, doesn't it? It creates a problem because I am not righteous on my own. I'm not holy on my own. I'm not spotless on my own. I can't have a right relationship to God unless Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again so that the one who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might have the righteousness of God in him. And so now, all of a sudden, I can be righteous because I am and holy. And so do you know how Paul refers to, to, to believers most often in the New Testament? Saints. Holy ones. So here's how this works. You are declared righteous. You're declared in right standing to God by faith in Jesus alone. You're declared righteous. Now all of a sudden, you're able to be before him in his presence. Now all of a sudden, you're able to serve him, right? And so the, the first part of our original design is holiness, without which we won't see the Lord. And the, one of the main things our salvation offers by grace through faith is you're a holy one. It's true. You're a holy one because God declared it. You're a holy one because Jesus accomplished it, not because of your works, and if you are righteous and you are holy, then the whole work of the Christian life is live who you are. You're holy, live holy. You're righteous, live righteous. So we're in righteousness and holiness. Second, before him. If our unrighteousness separated us from the presence of God, if our unrighteousness has driven this great chasm between us and God that is not able to be restored, but our design was to live in union and fellowship with God. 
Our design was to live in relationship to God. That's what we're made for. So you're declared righteous by the work of Jesus. And then you are allowed now. You're put back into the presence of God. You get to be before God and not be struck dead for it. You get to be before God and enjoy it to draw near to a throne of grace and just pull grace out of it over and over again. You get to run into a presence where God delights to hear from his children. Praise God. Praise God for salvation that does that. And then the last one, look at it. So we have the presence of God in intimacy. We have righteousness in our lives as a pursuit. And then the last part, to serve him without fear. I want you to think about it this way. There was a guy that was just moving the ark to Jerusalem at David's orders. He is serving the Lord. I think he's doing an awesome job until the ark starts to wobble and the ark almost falls over. And you know what he does? He's serving the Lord. Touches it to keep it from falling over. What did that service earn him? Immediate death. I'd be a little nervous about serving the Lord. David is. He's like, park the ark somewhere else. I don't want it in Jerusalem anymore. The high priest has to have a rope tied around his foot in case he messes up the offering on the Day of Atonement by going into the presence of the Lord the wrong way and just dies. I'll let you be the high priest. Let me stay back here where it's a little safer. And then look what it says in the text. You can serve the Lord without fear. You don't have to be afraid that you didn't serve him enough. You don't have to be afraid that you didn't serve him with such perfect precision that you're going to be struck for it. You don't have to be afraid that you didn't cross the right rituals enough to face the wrath of his holiness. Without any fear whatsoever, you can serve the Lord. And so you can Live a life of worship. You can serve him in worship, right? Serve the Lord. You can worship him. You can make a melody in your heart to him. You can gather with his people to declare his praises. You can go out in the world to reflect what he's like and live in response to the gospel and have no fear that it won't measure up. But you can also serve the Lord by looking at the people around you and meeting needs and blessing and encouraging, and growing, and changing, and shaping, and pressing marriages together, and restoring friendships, and and giving words that are like apples of gold and settings of silver. You can do that without any fear. Oh, it wasn't good enough. I can't measure up. You can serve the Lord without fear because you've been declared righteous, and you're welcomed into his presence. And so I want you to think through these. Now, every one of these is the grace of God in your life. You are righteous by grace through faith. You're allowed in his presence by grace through faith. Any service, you're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works by grace through faith. And if you get that right, then you can apply yourselves to doing it. And so think about this. You are in Christ. You have union with Christ. What's the command then? Abide in Christ. Are you growing and you're abiding because you are already united to him? That's what's true. Um, You are declared holy. Are you pursuing holiness? You are declared righteous. Are you pursuing righteousness? 
Are you growing? Do you see the connection? You are united, live in intimacy. You are righteous, live righteous. And then the last one that I would point out. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and give his life a ransom for many. We have been served. Will we serve? Will we serve? You see those connections, right? It makes all the difference in the world that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again to do this in us and then to do this through us. I'm not going to go into the last point. I'll just say a few things. Jesus enlightens the path to living at peace with God. Jesus enlightens the path to living at peace with God. You have John the Baptist. Why is he there according to his father? You're going to make the way of Jesus straight. You're going to prepare people for the Lord. He's going to have the spirit of Elijah, Malachi 2 and Malachi 4 say, to turn the hearts of people. And so, what is the role of John the Baptist? How do I prepare a way for Jesus to be received by a group of people? How do I declare, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so that there's people that are ready when Jesus comes on the scene? What a great task to ask yourself as well. How do I prepare the soil of my relationships, of the people I work with, of the people in my neighborhood, of the people I am friends with, how do I prepare the soil for Jesus to enter into their life? And then, he's going to prepare the way for the, day, for the day that's on high to come in and shine in darkness and lead in the way of peace with God. How do I prepare the way for Jesus to come? How do I share that Jesus has come and offer them light and life in its place? What a great time of year to think through questions like that. How do I use my life to prepare the way for Jesus? How do I open my mouth to tell them Jesus has already come? A few practical things as we wrap up. How can you cultivate for the Christmas season, how can you cultivate more abiding in Christ and more holiness in life? It is so easy to prioritize everything else but sitting still before the Lord to prioritize everything else but enjoying Christ and, and cultivating that union with Christ that you already have. And yeah, we talk about the word and we talk about gathering with people, we talk about prayer. But is there a priority in your heart that wants to abide, that wants to sit before the Lord? And then there's a, is there a commitment in your life that you want holiness to increasingly mark what's true about you. I'm a saint, and I want to increasingly let my life look like a holy one. Is that, is that the case? It struck me this morning. I hope I don't offend some of y'all, but that's okay, I think. Or we'll talk about them out there. I, I thought about the irony of this. We were actually messaging with, with, with people this week, Amy and I, is about this. Think about this. It's Christmas. Christ mass. Christ coming. But do you know how inconvenient Jesus is? He let his birthday fall on a Sunday this year. How on earth are my kids going to get to celebrate Christmas if we've got to go to church to celebrate Christ mass? I don't know how this is supposed to work. And so, you know, I'm sure there's churches that will actually not open up. 
I'm sure there's people who say, no, you just can't come. And I don't want you to feel guilty. Life has its things, and you may have commitments, but, but I do at least want you to think about it. How do I cultivate abiding in my heart? How do I grow in abiding? By celebrating Christmas so much that I miss church? Christ, not that Jesus isn't just here. Please don't hear me say that. But like we're going to gather to say, look at Jesus has come. It's so amazing. Christmas is about him. It's just kind of, you know, it does that. And so I was thinking like, how do I cultivate intimacy with God? How do I abide? Well, that's some of the thoughts that go through our minds is what, what do I prioritize? And it was just the irony that struck me of I'm going to celebrate Christmas by avoiding Christ's mass, right? And so, anyhow, sorry. Took you over time with that rambling and musing that was uh, in my heart today. We'll go on from there. How can you tangibly serve God and others around you? How can you tangibly serve God and others around you? What a great season when some of your committed times throttle back just a little bit. and Maybe you get a little more time off just a little bit. Maybe it's just one of those seasons where people are more open and receptive. Have you put any conscious thought into, how can I just bless and love and serve people around me over this month? What are some tangible ways I could serve and maybe even share the gospel with them, but serve people? What are some tangible ways I could encourage people in this fellowship? Who are some people that aren't going to be able to celebrate quite the way I'm celebrating because of what they're facing in their life? And what could I do to share the burden with them as they do that? Right? How can I find tangible ways to serve and bless another person during the season. And then the last one, how can you intentionally serve and share with people? How can you make it a point to say, I'm gonna prepare the way for Jesus and I'm gonna open my mouth about Jesus. How could you serve and share with people over this time? Maybe it'll be around a family dinner table and who cares, it might get a little awkward. It doesn't have to and it may not. How can you share Jesus? Maybe you make some cookies and Sing a gospel track and take it to your neighbors and ask how you could pray for them. Uh, you know, there's a million ways you can think about how do you serve and, and share with people. How do you welcome people in your home that don't have a home uh, or, or don't have a gathering that they're going to get to be a part of? How do you make lonely people feel welcomed? Right? So how can you intentionally serve and, and share with people? It's going to be a time where culturally people are much more awake to these things. But will we use it? Or will we just run by them because we're just too busy celebrating Christmas to invite people to Christ? Maybe you could start every single day, God, would you give me an interaction today where I could have an opportunity to share a truth or a lot of truth about Jesus and then walk your whole day with eyes open waiting for that prayer to be answered? How can you serve and share? Christ accomplished Christmas' mission. It was a rescue mission. It was a rescue mission that brought light into a world filled with darkness. It was a rescue mission that brought freedom from our deepest captivity. It's a rescue mission that's still ongoing because there's people that don't know it yet. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we bow. We bow as those who have been set free by the price of Jesus. We bow as those who take up Jesus uh, in our hearts like Zechariah did and our hearts burst with praise just a little more 
because salvation has come. God became flesh and he visited us. We've been redeemed. And so, Father, I pray that these truths would actually impact us, not just be things that we know, not just be things that are familiar or common, but they'd make a difference, they'd awaken us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So Christmas is about a rescue mission. Jesus has come. He has lived the life you could not live. He has died on a cross for your sins. He has been buried. He is raised again from the dead. He has sent his Holy Spirit to convict you and open your eyes to Jesus. Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? Not in your religion, not in your culture, in Jesus Christ. I invite you to come or fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. That, But maybe what you see is this Christmas season, you realize I've come to a place where I parked my Christian car. I've parked it because there's sin I like to play with. I've parked it because abiding in Jesus, I'm just too busy for that. I've parked it because serving is hard or serving I've been hurt by doing it before or I just don't have the space for it. And you need to come and confess, Lord, I've been still too long. Get me going again. Christians have a purpose. We're meant to drive. Or maybe for you, a fresh weight is put on your heart. There's one or two people in your life that don't know Christ. There's one or two people in your life you're going to be interacting with over the next month. And they're far from the Lord. And that weight is heavy again. Thank God for that and then pray for them. You can do that here. You can do it where you are. Let's stand together and sing um, as we respond to the Lord.